0: On June 6th in 1844, a man by the name of Sir George Williams founded what he called the Young Men's Christian Association. He established this organization to help develop youth through Bible study, promoting Christianity and subsequent humanitarian work based on Christian principles. His goal was to develop a healthy mind, body, and spirit as stated in their mission statement. And so they would hold a variety of activities for youth, including sports and athletics and classes to help them learn various life skills. Over the past 175 years, the Young Men's Christian Association has grown to 120 countries with over 64 million people impacted by their classes. With that growth more of a focus on the activities than on the Christianity. And today, the YMCA is pretty much known as a gym. The C still stands for Christian, believe it or not, in today's age. And even in their mission statement and on their website, it still says that they are promoting Christian principles. Some of you are probably surprised If you are familiar with the YMCA or ever been a member or used their gym or gone to a class, that the C indeed stands for Christian. Because when you walk in there, though in the name is Christian, there's nothing Christian about it. There's nothing Christian about their classes. There's nothing Christian about their employees. To get so focused on going through the motions rather than the reason for those motions, That you lose your depth of worship and your reverence for God is a common problem in Christian organizations, including the church. I can think of few practices within the church that are more prone to such numbing of the heart and mind than the Lord's Supper, known also as communion, the Lord's Table. We go through the motions we drink the juice, we eat the bread, we look around, awkward silence, fumble with the flap. And we forget what we're doing, why we're here. Perhaps we've never been taught. Perhaps some of you never knew. You just understood this as something you did at church. Just like stand up, sit down, open your Bible, close it, listen, leave. But as we come to communion, not just today, but In our church on a monthly basis, we understand that there's something more to that. There's obviously a reason that we celebrate it. There's a reason that verses are read. There's a reason that at our church, we take some time for you to repent, to get your heart right. There's a reason for it. And so perhaps as we've begun this study in 1 Corinthians 11 on communion, there's a nagging voice in your mind that says there's got to be something more to just, well few extra minutes at church to drink this juice and eat this little piece of bread. So what's the solution? What's the solution to not lose our depth of worship in communion? What's the solution to regain it? What's the solution to have it in the first place? For many things in the Christian life, but in particular in communion, even as stated by the Lord himself, I believe the solution is easy. It is remembered. Remember. Remember what it's all about. Remember its roots. Remember why it came to be. Remember what Jesus did. And this morning I invite you to remember. To remember what communion is all about. I did not plan to preach this passage. I did not look through the schedule and plan it on a day that we would have communion. But clearly the Lord did. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, if you would turn there with me. We've been looking at this passage. We started last week in a multi-week series on the Lord's Table. And if you're new to the concept, though people may use those terms for different reasons, for different contexts, for our context this morning, the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, communion all refer to the same thing. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, Paul writes, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had taken, or when he had given thanks rather, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. For us to have a greater sense of worship, a greater seriousness about what this means, I want to give you this morning six facts to remember to help you worship through communion. Six facts to remember to help you worship through communion. The first fact is the Lord's table was instituted by Christ. The Lord's table was instituted by Jesus Christ himself. Let me read for you again verse 23 where I get this point. He says, and this is Paul writing, For I received from the Lord... That which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. He received something in the past. He has delivered it to the Corinthians and the other churches. An interesting note here is that it is generally agreed that 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote that we're studying here, was written before any of the Gospels were written, making what we're studying right now the first written account of the Lord's Supper. So how did Paul know about it? Well, this is the early church, and it's a tradition that has passed among Christians since its inception. We're not even talking about multiple generations. Jesus was just alive a few years ago, and so it's there. The people who witnessed it are still there. The Gospels had not been written yet. We know that those disciples that were with him when he instituted the Lord's table are still alive. In fact, it is the re- one of the reasons the Gospels were written later compared to other New Testament books, though they appear first in the New Testament, they were written later, not last, but later, is because it got to the point where the church was growing, people were being martyred, people were getting old, and the eyewitnesses were saying, we need to write this down while we're still alive, while we still can. And by then there were other epistles already written. Now, we do know that Paul had received direct revelation from God. He talks about that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And when you look at the wording here, it seems to indicate that that is the case from uh, in regards to the Lord's table as well, when he says, I received it from the Lord. So he received it from the Lord, and now he's passing it on or delivering it to the churches. Both those words that he uses there, received and delivered, were technical terms in the Jewish culture, in other words, in Paul's mind, so how he would write, Paul's heritage, that referred to religious instruction or the transmission of important traditions. The emphasis here being the command of Jesus to practice the Lord's table. This is, of course, a familiar concept to us the passing of knowledge and practice from one person to another or one generation to the next. You receive from somebody, your teachers, your grandmother, your siblings, whoever, and then you pass it on. That's what Paul is saying he is doing from the Lord to him, to the churches. And what's important here is that Jesus is the ultimate source of this tradition. Even if he is using uh, hyperbole in a sense, and he just received this tradition ultimately from the Lord, but directly from other people, we understand that Jesus is the source. He himself instituted the Lord's table. And we know that he's talking about this, specifically the Last Supper, the Passover meal he had with his disciples and where he instituted the Lord's table, because we are given a historical clue. Look at the verse the night in which he was betrayed. We know what night that was, the Last Supper. It is the night that he was betrayed into the hands of the Jews by one of his disciples, Judas, the act of betrayal. Now, although it comes later in the text under this point, I want to stress that this was not just a fun thing to do, a good thing to do, a helpful thing to do, a suggested tradition. This was and is commanded by God. We see this in verse 24, do this. And we see this in verse 25, again, do this. It's an imperative in the Greek, it is a command. In other words, if you are a believer, it is a sin not to take the Lord's table. It is a sin to constantly reject it, to constantly not practice the Lord's table. It is a sin for churches to say, we don't practice this for whatever reason. It is commanded by God. There are times, of course, as we will see in the following, coming weeks, that there are times where it is good for you to let the cup and the bread pass that time. That's not what we're talking about. That's a good thing to do. But if it's a habitual practice, it is sin. We are to do it. It's commanded. The fact to remember here to help us worship through communion is that this is from God. This is from the Lord Himself. We have the record of it in three of the Gospels. The Synoptics. And 2,000 years later, what a blessing it is to commemorate what Jesus did on the cross, to recite what He recited with that last Passover meal with the disciples. For now, as we'll see, there will be more in the future. And for us to have a fuller understanding of what it is and what it represents. Remember, he said, this is my body, this is my blood. He's talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about the new covenant. The disciples had no idea what he was talking about. They had some idea, but they didn't have a full understanding of what was to happen in just a few hours. Peter even rebuked him. Remember this? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Wow, he had to die. And so we today have a fuller understanding than even those first participants who witnessed the institution of communion. To be able to look back and have the record for us in the Gospels of his betrayal, of his farce of a trial, of his crucifixion, of his resurrection, with historians filling in the blanks of what he would have endured physically, what the area would have looked like, And so we remember. We remember, first of all, that this is from the Lord. And like all commands, they are wonderful. They are good. They build us up. They help us. They draw us closer to Him. And this leads us to our second fact to remember to help you worship through communion. The Lord's table illustrates the sacrifice of Christ. The Lord's table illustrates the sacrifice of Christ. You understand this. You're familiar with this concept. Find this in the end of verse 23 and verse 24. I'll read all of 23 again. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, and here it is, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we have this picture of Jesus taking this bread and breaking it. It would have been a thin, flat cake of bread that everyone shared, still eaten in Israel today. Uh, Sometimes it's hard for us to picture because we buy our bread sliced for the most part and you serve it already sliced or everyone gets a roll, but you've probably been in restaurants where you kind of got to cut up that bread and share it with everyone. That's how it was back then and in most of the world today, frankly. And he took that bread and he declared to his disciples and to the world and all of us that the bread represented his body. Now, there's a misconception among many that he was saying that in subsequent Lord's tables in the practice of communion, that the bread becomes the actual body of Christ somehow. So you are eating somehow the physical body of Christ that has miraculously transformed. And we know that that's just not true because we look at how he instituted it. We know that in the record he is saying this bread represents his body for the simple fact that he was standing right there and holding the bread and saying, this is my body, rather than doing something else and giving, him, giving his disciples a physical piece of his body and saying, this is my body, as they all s- sit there aghast at what he just did. You can kind of, although it's heretical, you can kind of understand why people want that, but when you really think about it, it's gross. It does not become the actual body or blood, for that matter, of Jesus Christ. It's represented there. And we know that from, you know, if I said this, if I said this, if I was giving an analogy... And I wanted to share with you how my son threw something on the floor, and I said, so this is the toy he was holding. You know that it's not the actual toy. I'm just saying this represents the toy and what I'm talking about. It's the same thing there. I, I think you get this. I just want to be very clear, because there are people who believe in what's called transubstantiation, that upon the priest's blessing, the elements, it becomes the body and blood. That doesn't happen. So he took this piece of bread, not a literal, literal piece of his body, the same kind that they had been eating all night, the same kind that was at that very moment being digested in their stomachs. So what is it that this bread represents? What is his body when he says that? We conventionally think, well, yes, it talks about his body being sacrificed on the cross. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. But in the Jewish mindset of the day, and the reason I keep bringing that up is because the context is going to tell us what those words meant, just as if someone received uh, a letter or even watched a YouTube video made in America, but they're in China or they're in France, they would have to say, well, in America, they do this for them to understand why there's ice in the cup or getting free refills or something like that. Those of you who've been to Europe understand what I'm saying. And so we go back and we understand that the Jewish mindset would have been what dictated how he used this word. And in that culture, in Paul's writings, the body represented more than just the physical body. This is more than he bled and died and his physical heart stopped beating, which is a big part of it, you understand. But they would understand back then for this to mean the whole person. For Jesus, this would mean the entirety of his incarnate life, his teaching, his ministry, his work, his earthly experiences. Now we understand all of that is sacrificed when the body dies. Everything that you are ends when you die. We're not talking about legacy here. We're talking about that everything that Jesus came to be and everything that Jesus experienced in those 30 some odd years. He says, I sacrifice this, all of it, everything I've been through. The agony of being human, the physical pain, the physical hunger, the sleep, the relationships, all of it, I sacrificed on the cross. In other words, what was sacrificed for us was not just his physical body, but the entirety of his earthly life. He gave it all up. I also want to clarify that the breaking of the bread was not symbolic of Christ's body being broken, A lot of people also misunderstand that, understandably so. It's simply a cultural act of physically tearing and sharing the bread. In fact, in John chapter 19 verse 36, it says that in fulfillment of prophecy, none of Jesus's bones were broken on the cross. This would have been something that would have been done if the person that was crucified on the cross did not die soon enough, Then they would break some bones to speed up the process of them suffocating on the cross, being unable to breathe because being unable to push themselves up on the cross to be able to take a breath. But Jesus died before that could happen. This was a fulfillment of the command that the Passover lamb in Egypt, the original Passover, and in the subsequent celebrations of it, none of the lamb's bones were to be broken Exodus 20.46 and Numbers 9.12 specifically state this. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus' blood and death and sacrifice, as we'll talk more about in a minute. Regardless, you understand that the crucifixion was brutally intense, and Christ sacrificed the entirety of his incarnate life for us. And We're talking about facts to remember to help us worship in communion. And if you are already worshiping because of the understanding of his pain and suffering in his sacrifice for uh, for us, understand that what he sacrificed was a lot more than we conventionally think about. He gave it all for us. And we know that the sacrifice of Christ was real. When we take communion, we are reminded of this sacrifice. It illustrates the reality of what Christ has done for us, and for most of us, that is really the height, the centrality of communion for us. Sometimes believers will even, even when they when they go to communion, they say, "Well, I'm, I'm kind of distracted. I'm not thinking about this. I'm not taking it seriously," and so they'll try to conjure up in their minds uh, pictures they've seen, perhaps from from movies or or pictures of Jesus sacrificing on the cross. But you have to understand that it's more than just an emotional thing for us. It is an intellectual, cognitive understanding of all that he did for us. His bread is my body for you. A third fact to remember to help us worship through communion is that the Lord's table identifies the Christian with Christ. The Lord's table identifies the Christian with Christ. In other words, when you take communion, it's not just remembering that guy over there in the distance, distant past. It's remembering how you are part of all of this. The end of verse 24, it says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then again, in the end of verse 25, In remembrance of me. We are familiar with these words. I and pretty much most pastors in the world will read these words from one of the many places it is in Scripture at the taking of the Lord's table. And we take communion again to remember. Jesus instituted communion so that we would remember. But oftentimes when we do something in memory of someone or something, it is a nod to that person, then the rest of the time is not about that person. It's focused on self. Our fun, our family, our sadness even. This is true, ironically, because of the name of Memorial Day. We says, yes, thankful for the freedom we have in this country. And then it's a big barbecue, it's a big picnic, it's having fun, it's a day off, it's relaxing, sleeping in, catching up on whatever, Right? We don't really memorialize that which we are supposed to memorialize, even though it's called Memorial Day. We remember, oh yes, this is about this, and then you kind of go on and and that's it. And this, if you recall from last week, is precisely what the Corinthians had done. They acknowledged that this was a Christian thing, this was for Christ, but they were focusing on themselves and their pleasures even in the midst of the supper. But the word remembrance that Paul uses twice here, does not simply mean in memory of him. Again, in that culture for the Hebrew, the Jew, this was more than just to bring to mind or, or recall something. Oh yeah, that's, it's, it's their, their birthday. Let's, that's good to know. Hey kids, it's, it's, it's the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. And then you move on with the day and hey, let's go to the zoo because there's no school today. No, this word remembrance has the meaning of memorial, which means to meditate as much as possible on the reality and significance of the event. In communion, when we memorialize, when we remember, we are to relive the life, agony, suffering, and sacrifice of Christ to the best of our abilities in our minds. I think this is a, a good way to think of it is, this remembering, oh yeah, this is, remember this is, you know, my buddy who passed away. This would have been his, uh, 65th birthday. You're like, oh yeah, I miss him. And then you go on with your day. Versus when you actually went to his memorial service. You're thinking about him, you're quiet, you say hi quietly in reverence, you dress up. There's pictures, there's people who share about stories so you think about them, you remember these things, not just bring to mind, but remember, oh yeah, he was like that, oh I didn't know, thanks for telling me that story, I didn't know that about him. There's maybe even a slideshow, a video, a goodbye message from the deceased. That's a memorial, that's what communion should be. Not just, oh yeah, yeah, thank you, Lord, and then drink, eat, and that's it. We need to think deeply. We must memorialize what Jesus Christ has done for us in the true sense of a memorial because He died for us but is alive. We are to eat the Lord's Supper in memorial of the salvation that is ours as a result of His death and resurrection. On a personal level, this point is what's going to help most of us worship through communion the most. To think deeply on what Christ has done, but not just that, to think deeply on what Christ has done for you. For you. We've all been to memorial services where we're just a guest. You never knew this co worker of your spouse. You're the spouse. Maybe you're a family member. I never knew my grandpa, but I'm here. I'm a grandson, granddaughter. But this is for you. You know him. And you know what he did was for you. And this is to do more than just strike an emotional chord for you. It draws into the reality that we identify with Jesus Christ because of his death. You could say that we identify with his death. So what does this look like? Well, some responses to this or some things to pursue to help you in your worship and proper practice of communion would be trust and gratitude. To know how much of your life you go through trusting God because He died for you. To be thankful for what He has done for you. As we'll see in a moment, you can also look ahead to eternity. To know that because He died for us, because He died for you, you will be in heaven. There is no fear of death. O sin, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I'll tell you where it was. Where it is. On the cross. Which we're memorializing. Which ended up being a bad victory anyways because he rose from the dead. And he was victorious. How else can you take this remembrance and worship through communion, understand, and realize. And remember, we're talking about thinking deeply. A lot of times we don't do this. We don't think deeply about our lives. Right? We think about the here and now. We think about this coming week, next weekend, the project due in a month. We don't think about the entirety of our lives. But we realize, we must realize, we can realize that the narrative of your entire life, and frankly, the narrative of the entire world and universe, has been reshaped by our identity with this event that is foundational to Christianity and defines the Christian story story, and has changed the world. It's more than just this. It's a world that has been changed and reshaped. Agree with them or not, you know what people are trying to do? When they protest in the streets, they're trying to reshape the narrative of the United States of America. And the reason they're getting, they're protesting bigger and more violent and getting mad is because they can't reshape it. You can't do it. Get a few bills passed. Maybe this store will do this. Maybe these people will start putting a sign at their door. But nothing has reshaped the entirety of the story of mankind not just our country, mankind and your eternity than what we memorialize this morning in communion. Man, if that doesn't get you worshiping in that juice and that bread, I don't know what will. So friends, remember. Remember. And as you sit there during communion and you take of the elements wrestling with the flap on the cup or your mind wandering to the day's events, I want you to focus in this verse on one of the most powerful phrases in all of the Bible and thus one of the most powerful phrases in all of the world. Look at the verse, the phrases, for you. For you. For you. He did this for you. This is why it is so important for the believer that, as I said earlier, it is sin to forsake it, but also why it is sin for the unbeliever to take it. More on that next week. But let's move on to our fourth fact to remember to help us worship through communion. The Lord's table initiated the new covenant. Talk about changing the world. The Lord's table initiated the new covenant. Look at verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What in the world does that mean? First, we are told that just as he took the bread in the same way he took the cup, we're told after supper, quite possible he did broke the bread and then they had the meal and then he took the cup. It doesn't matter uh, for our purposes. And while the bread illustrated his sacrifice, his body, the cup highlights the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, he said. Same thing, it is a representation of his blood and not his actual blood that he was holding. But what does this mean? His blood is the new covenant. Obviously, he was looking forward to um, looking ahead, not looking forward like eagerly, looking forward knowing that his blood would be spilt quite soon. What does this mean? Remember back at that Last Supper, not to be confused with the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper, the Passover meal with the disciples, Jesus was eating the Passover meal. If you're not familiar, this was the once-a-year celebration of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, referred to as Passover, because a sacrificial lamb was killed, and the blood of the lamb was, as God directed Moses, to direct the Israelites to be put on the posts and the lintel, what we would just call the doorframe today, of the Israelites' home. Then the Lord sent the destroyer, often referred to as the angel of death, to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, but, and here's the word, passed over the homes that had the blood on the doorframe, in other words, the Israelites. To put it quite simply, the blood of the lamb had protected them from death. Later, in the midst of the wandering in the desert, the Lord... Through Moses instituted an agreement known as a covenant with the Israelites. We refer this to this as the old covenant. I want you to see it in your Bibles. Exodus 24 verses four through eight, where we learn about the ratifying of the old covenant. Exodus 24 verses four through eight. The key for our purposes this morning is verse 8, but I want to read the whole passage. 4 through 8, Exodus 24. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, Okay, you catch that? He's collecting the blood in a bowl. And these are large animals. It's a lot of blood. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar that he had just built. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Verse 8. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, to be clear, the covenant, the agreement, the contract which the Lord has made with all of you. But it was ratified, it was sealed with blood. The covenant between God and his people was ratified with the shedding of blood. Do you see where we're going with this? The blood foreshadowed, typified, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, type, and also promised the blood of a final lamb that was to come. That lamb turned out to be a person, Jesus Christ. The new covenant being promised in the Old Testament during the Old Covenant in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31.31. Fast forward to the Last Supper and the events that followed. Jesus declares that the cup represents the blood of the new covenant. The blood of the bowls in the basins, old covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ, new covenant. Then hours later, he ratifies the new covenant with the shedding of blood on the cross. This time, his own. And in so doing... From Old Covenant to New Covenant, the Passover is transformed into the Lord's Supper. We don't do it just once a year, we do it more often than that. It varies church to church. We do it once a month here. But do you understand that all of that wonder, all of that beauty, all of that blood, we are celebrating? what has taken the place of the Passover for the Israelites. Because of his blood and the faith that he has given us, if you are a believer, you could say that there is a day at the judgment seat where those who are being sent to eternal damnation, we will be passed over from that damnation because of the blood of the Lamb the lamb who incidentally had no bone broken. We know he was the one. We know it was him. The temporary protection of the specific individuals in Egypt became the promise of eternal salvation for all who believe. The blood of Christ represented in the Lord's table initiated the new covenant. So when we celebrate the Lord's table, we remember the reality of the new covenant that we can be saved though Gentile. The world can be saved though many are Gentile. And it's permanent. It, there's no temple to go to week after week, shedding blood. Over and over, knowing that it's not permanent, knowing that it's temporary, knowing that, you you know, I got to save up because I got to do this again because I know I'm going to get angry. I know I'm going to be impatient. I know I'm going to be proud and I need to go and offer that sin offering once again. Permanent. Done. It's not just a cup and a piece of wafer, it represents the new covenant. What because of this cup and what it represents, the new covenant? What would not exist without it? In other words, what can we remember when we celebrate the Lord's table and the new covenant? Uh, Some minor things like the church, not just this church, the church. The millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of Christians that have ever lived and will ever live. Eternal salvation offered to the world. Eternal forgiveness of sins. New covenant. Ratified by what is represented in that little cup. Speaking of the world, we have our fifth fact to remember to help you worship through communion. Although the Lord's table is for believers and glorifies God, there is an aspect of communion that is for the world, the unbelieving world. The fifth fact is the Lord's table informs the world. It informs the world. Look at verse 26. Four, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is power in the gathering of God's people and the truths we proclaim. I'm going to say that again. There is power in the gathering of God's people and the truths we proclaim. Elsewhere in the Bible, that power is called salt and light. And when Paul begins this verse with the word for, he is explaining the reason for the Lord's command. Paul is saying, when you assemble for this reason communion you must consider this and what we are to consider is that we are proclaiming something at the communion and that is the lord's death and our salvation to proclaim something means more than just remember as we've been talking about it may means to make a solemn announcement it refers to public preaching Or publishing something. You only publish something if you want to disseminate it to other people. As believers, our testimony is centered around the truth of the gospel. And when we live out the gospel, when we speak biblical truth, when we evangelize, we are being salt and light to the world, we are proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ. But you have to understand the central hub, the base of what we do and whom we are is the local assembly, the church, the local church, this Sunday mornings. It's our hub. It's our HQ. And when we come together to take communion, an act that you understand is foreign to the world and by the way, of which there is no record in Scripture of it being taken outside of an assembly of believers, in other words, outside of a local church, you proclaim to the world that you are not ashamed of the blood of Christ. In other words, the Lord's Supper, this is great, the Lord's Supper is the great preacher of the death of Christ. Going back to the Corinthians, if this was truly recognized by them, then for sure they wouldn't be overindulging, shaming others, allowing others to go hungry as they were doing, as we saw last week. Similarly, with this truth recognized, we will not just go through the motions. We will keep our minds from wandering or otherwise take communion lightly in any way. We do it the first Sunday of every month. We did it last week. We tried to do our best to remind you the week before. And I know for many people, when they know communion is coming, that whole week is terrifying for them. Largely because of what we're going to see next week in taking communion in a worthy manner. And that Saturday and that Saturday night, they go to bed early. They get all prayed up. They reconcile. They confess. They repent. Because they understand the seriousness and the severity of all that we've been talking about. This is a big deal. And when we understand all of this, you'll understand why... Paul goes on to say in the passage we're going to look at next week that if you do it in an unworthy manner, you're drinking judgment to yourself. You're eating extra judgment to yourself. Even for the unbeliever, somehow their judgment is worse if they take communion in an unworthy manner. And there is a reminder also for us. We don't live perfect lives. I am so thankful. I am so thankful that I know this week there were several people that had to have hard conversations about stuff that had happened, my wife included, to call up someone she hardly knows and says, we have communion coming. Can we reconcile? Families in our church that I know of did that this week. And praise God. For that, praise God no matter how much you want to dig in your heels no matter how much you want to fight no matter how much you want to keep that argument going the silent treatment communion is bigger than that it's more important and what it symbolizes far outweighs any disagreements in your family or outside of your family or wherever any pleasures of sin, any struggles with impurity, any fights with pride and anger. We cannot take communion lightly. We're talking about proclaiming. On a practical note, in today's church we do this in private. No one's looking in. We're on a live stream right now, but chances are it's only other believers. So where's the proclamation? We're still proclaiming. But the point is that what communion represents also represents what we are to be about. So every Sunday, but in particular this Sunday, because we're taking communion, does your life outside the church reflect the reality of what you proclaim inside the church? It's a rhetorical question because in the sense that I want you to ponder that. I don't want you to yell out your answer. But I do want to give you a heads up. That is one of the questions for those of you who go to small group. Because you need to answer that question. Does your life outside the church, which may include the privacy of your own home, Reflect the reality of what you proclaim inside the church on a weekly basis, but especially when you proclaim the death of Christ by taking communion. The table informs the world. Finally, the sixth fact to remember is the Lord's table indicates the Lord's return. The Lord's table indicates the Lord's return. Look at how he finishes this passage in verse 26. Until he comes. Powerful promise. The Lord's table doesn't just look at the past, his sacrifice, or the present, our faith, but the future, the return of the Lord. In all three gospel accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says that he will not drink this cup again until the kingdom of God arrives. And in Matthew's record, Jesus says, drink it with you, speaking to the disciples. I think we often get distracted in the taking of the elements of the Lord's table because of the multitude of things that occupy our minds on a daily basis. Most of us remember a day where there are no distractions anywhere you go because no one can get a hold of you through your pocket. They leave a message on your answering machine. They mail you a letter, <laughs> fax you a form, even emails. You couldn't check it on your phone. But now we've got all these things going on. Life has gotten busier. there's so many things distracting us. We get distracted. Things occupy our minds every single day, every minute of every day. Some of you are tired right now. Because there are things going on in your head all night you couldn't sleep because of that work project, because of your sick uncle, or whatever it may be. We have stuff going on. But like that upcoming vacation, but obviously so much more than that, we take communion in part to focus on and look forward to His return. You've done that. This is the busiest season of our company. But after that, we all get two weeks vacation. You stress, you stress, you stress. You're, stress, you're, stress, and you're like, ah, oh, but that vacation with my wife and kids. Some of you might even print out a, a picture of the beach you're going to or a picture of Disneyland and put it on your cubicle. Oh, just got to muscle through it. But yeah, it's coming. It's coming. In the busyness of daily life, we have this regular reminder in communion that no matter how hard things may be, in just our own daily battle and struggle with sin, let alone dealing with other people's sin, other people's pride, other people's impatience, anger, self of, sense of self-entitlement, corruption, driven by money, all those things that the world pushes on us that we, uh, we, we have to be a part of, Because we have unbelieving family members and we have unbelieving co-workers and we work for unbelieving bosses. We look to this cup like that picture of that island paradise and say, the Lord is coming again. The Lord is coming again. The Lord is coming again. It doesn't give us an excuse to to be immoral or irresponsible or a bad steward. But we find relief that this isn't everything. Everything. This isn't all. Even in sickness, when there's no direct sin involved, we know the Lord is coming again and were they believers, we will meet again. We will greet. We will hug, shake hands, whatever they do in eternity. I don't know. Point, join the chorus. That's Going to be the best. The story is not over. But friends, we're in the home stretch. You see, Christ's death wasn't the end, but the beginning of the end. We're in the end. We're in the home stretch. The story is not over, and communion is a regular reminder not only that the story is not over, but the end of the story is so much more. But without any of this, no viruses, no sin, no clicking talk on our lives, no death, no sickness, no sadness, no sadness. So we take communion, and we remember the past, but we also look forward to the future. Six facts to remember to help you worship through communion. The Lord's table was instituted by Christ himself. The Lord's table illustrates the sacrifice of Christ. The Lord's table identifies the Christian with Christ. The Lord's table initiated the new covenant. The Lord's table informs the world. And the Lord's table indicates his promised return. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a powerful reminder of what we are to remember. I pray that we would be a people who appreciate all that we've looked at, not just appreciating your coming return when things are hard, not just having faith when going through a trial not just remembering the gospel when we are struggling with sin, but may we remember all of these wonderful things every day and may we get that extra boost every time we take the Lord's table. However each of us may have taken it, Lord, may we have a greater depth of worship in taking the Lord's table this morning And every time we take communion until indeed we see you face to face. Help us to worship through communion. Glorify yourself through our hearts and our minds and our memorializing in communion. Protect us from taking it in an unworthy manner. Protect us from just going through the motions. We thank you for your death on the cross, We thank you that this is based on something and something huge. May we remember, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.